So this morning we're moving into chapter 3 of the epistle of Second Peter. And one commentator who analyzed this portion of Second Peter said it, it's clear that God's word directs his people to get their guidance for faith and life from the Bible, not from a non-rational, out-of-the-blue illumination. You don't just sit in a corner and expect that you're going to somehow get God's revelation to you. You end up having to go to Scripture. And so when we come to this third chapter of Second Peter, we see that Peter goes into a little bit of a slight change because all through chapter 2, Peter has been denouncing false teachers and false prophets. And here uh, he, uh, once again, in this chapter, brings that truth out about false teachers. But what he does is he starts to zero in on encouraging and challenging God's people to use their minds to focus on God's Word. And, and to do that with the fact that these false teachers and false prophets are out there. <clears throat> and so there's no question that Peter has just concluded this lengthy section in chapter 2 that exposes the, the false teachers, and he targets them and blasts them. He wanted God's people to be able to spot them a mile away. But then when he comes to chapter 3, he stresses the importance of being mentally focused. Being focused on the inspired Word of God. And so here's the really blunt truth, is that you are a vulnerable person. And probably more vulnerable than you realize. And so am I. Um, Brene Brown She's a sociologist at the uh, University of Houston. And this is interesting what she says. She says, we are those people. The truth is, we are the others. Most of us are just one paycheck, one divorce, one drug-addicted kid, one mental health diagnosis, one serious illness, one sexual assault, one drinking binge, one night of unprotected sex, or one affair away from being those people. You know, the ones that you don't trust, the ones that you pity, the ones that you don't let your children play with, the ones that are bad and the and bad things happen to, the ones that you don't want to live next door. I thought that was a very interesting insight. And the point that Brene Brown's statement was that we need to admit our vulnerability. But more than 2,000 years earlier, the Apostle Peter took the same approach to help us avoid a more permanent disaster with eternal consequences. You see, as part of the body of Christ, we are vulnerable to false prophets who want to destroy our hope in Christ. And in our study of Second Peter, Peter has been dealing with the character and the certain future of these false prophets. Peter, like Jesus and the Apostle Paul, 
had warned us that false teachers will constantly hound the church. And we saw last week how they primarily prey upon those who are unstable within the body of Christ. And you might remember last week, Peter was warning God's people about the dangerous threats represented by the false teachers and that they were loose within the congregation. And that's amazing because we often think that, well, not in the church of God. Um, This wasn't in my notes, but I'm going to turn to it because I I think that it's very important. Um, If we look at uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 18, it says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. So that's what, what Paul is telling them. There are divisions. I understand there are divisions. But then, in verse 19, he says something interesting. For there must also be factions among you. He uses the word must. There must be factions, also factions among you. And here's why. That those who are approved may be recognized among you. So that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Isn't that amazing? And it's really, if we expect that that's the the thing that happens in the world, that we go out and we're recognized as, as people of faith in the church, it's even a, a more concise that we will be recognized among those people as those who are truthful, those who have the truth. And so, as a part of the body of Christ, we're vulnerable to these false prophets who want to destroy our hope. And so, you remember last week that Paul uh, Peter's warning was against this dangerous threat of these false teachers who were loose within the congregation, and these people were scoffers. They didn't believe that Jesus was coming back. They didn't believe in the final judgment. They didn't believe that holiness was something that we should would should seek, or that we should seek to be sanctified at all. Sanctified means it's the process of becoming holy. And as I had uh, mentioned in our Wednesday study, that people go, so what's the big deal about false teachers? What's the big deal about not understanding the Word of God? I'll tell you what the big deal is. You're robbing Christ of His glory. You see, we as believers are like mirrors. We always say, give give God the glory. Let's have a good understanding of this. We do not give God, something he doesn't have. We reflect back what he shows. And so if we are like a mirror, when we are being sanctified, we're like cleaning the mirror to reflect his glory, therefore giving him the glory that is reflected to us. We're sort of like the moon. 
The moon doesn't have light. It reflects the, the light of the sun. And so we don't give him something. Well, false teachers take and they spread mud on that mirror. So we don't reflect the glory due Christ. So that's one thing that we have to think about. And so we have these these people who come within the church and they go, oh, just believe in Jesus and live however you want. When we do that, we rob him of the glory. And Peter had a very stern warning about this. He said that these people are headed to hell and woe to anyone that's foolish enough to follow after them. And so now here in chapter 3, he continues on with that theme, and he's telling us that these false teachers have either forgotten or willingly suppressed things that they know to be true so as to provide cover for their wicked and immoral lives. And that's really what's going on here. And Peter says there is no good reason for anyone to be taken in by their nonsense. We need to know what the Bible says. We need to know what was predicted in the Old Testament and what was said by Jesus and what now is even being said by the apostles. The church of the Lord Jesus has always lived in anticipation of three things. The first thing is His return to gather His redeemed people. Secondly, was to destroy the wicked, and thirdly, was to establish his glorious kingdom. And we have lived in that hope as believers, as all believers before us and all believers after us will. We live in hope, says the Apostle Paul, and indeed that hope is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That hope, according to the Word of God, is really our motivator. In fact, it may well be the greatest or among the greatest of all motivators for our joy and for our our service and for our holiness. We live in anticipation that Jesus will return. And with Him, He will bring reward, reward to those who are faithful based upon the level of commitment and faithfulness that we exhibit in our lives. He desires that we obey His commandments. So, Peter is reviewing some of those things. And he is providing some very useful pastoral counsel. And we'll see how tender Peter is as he does this. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to our text for this morning. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Starting with verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers 
will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is how Peter refers to God's people. This is pastoral. He says, beloved. He calls them the beloved. In the Greek, this is the word agapetos. And he actually uses this term four times in this final chapter of 2 Peter. In verses 1, 8, 14, and 17. And this is a very tender term. Which means Peter highly highly esteemed and greatly loved these people. His heart was with the believers. Robert Harvey said, We hear the heartbeat of Peter's pastoral concern by the use of this term. Peter can address his readers as his own beloved only because they're altogether beloved of the Father. What we have here is what is a true family, of which all other families, even at their best, are only a copy or shadow of. The true family is right here. And so I think it's significant that all the writers of the New Testament epistles, uh, Paul, Peter, the author of Hebrews, James, John, Jude, they all address their readers with agapitos, with beloved. Isn't that beautiful? And so basic and fundamental to our identity as Christians is that we are all children beloved by God the Father. And because of that, we are brothers and sisters beloved of one another. And basic to and fundamental to our identity as Christians is that we are all members of a family. The family which Paul refers to in Galatians 6.10 as the household of faith. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And in Ephesians, Paul refers to them to them as the household of God. He says there, now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and here it is, members of the household of God. Peter has written stinging truth, rebuking false teachers, but at the same time, he wanted God's people to know the reason he did this. Because they were people who were loved by God and by Him and the other apostles. Even though this is a letter of warning, the reason he writes it is because God's people are so special. And now there are two main observations that I want to make concerning this section of Scripture. The first is that Peter wrote a second epistle. Again, the first part of verse 1, it says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. The, the Greek is, it's actually letter, but the Greek word is um, epistole. 
And the word is where we get our English word epistle or letter. And it's confusing because there's some that aren't sure whether what letter Peter was referring to as being his second letter, because some scholars have gone to great lengths saying, well, we don't really have a first letter. How they get that, I don't know. But the most logical conclusion is that he's referring to First Peter. First Peter is the first letter written by Peter, and Second Peter was the second letter. You don't have to be a rocket surgeon for that, right? It's just a logical observation. And so Peter knows that he's going to die soon. And so he's driving home the importance of God's people keeping their minds focused on the written, inspired Word of God. And so he himself is writing one more epistle, which is inspired. And his contextual point is, I didn't write this letter just for fun, or just to kill some time, or just to wait until I die. These letters were written to give you the truth of God to challenge the way you think and live. The written scriptures are the most important, tangible thing that we have concerning God and godly living. Accurate understanding of these 66 books of the Bible are the most important thing that we will do in this life. And I'm convinced that the only way to accurately understand God's Word is go straight through the book. I have a friend who, as he preaches, he goes, he starts through in an expository way, but he gets, you know, they're going over and over. I, I'm not going to dig deep to get any new nuggets. I'm just going to jump to another book. And it tends to be where you, you start looking for what's going to be exciting. What's going to be something that's going to be hitting it out of the park. And I, I'm so grateful for uh, men like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul that say, you know what, preach what's there. Preach the text. Dig deep into the text. Don't try to hit it out of the park. I think it's funny that after the All-Star break, you have all of the baseball players that are good home run hitters. They get together and they start having this home run derby. Do you know what those guys do? They start hitting upward to try to get that ball to travel out. Well, then when the season starts again, their swing is all messed up because they're trying to hit home runs. doesn't work. It doesn't work with preaching either. I cannot sit there and go, I'm going to only preach on the verses that you think that, or I think that you want to hear. I can't jump around. I mean, so many people want to uh, focus on one verse, and there are a lot of people that are probably going, oh boy, I can't wait until he gets to where it says God. God is not wishing that any would perish. You know, that's where, oh, let's get to that one. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So we preach straight through. And yes, there are some verses that sort of get us, you know, our, our uh, excitement up a little bit, but all of it is profitable. And so we see that Peter wrote this entire letter 
that we have to have the responsibility to go through it and understand. And the second observation that I want to make is that Peter's purpose for writing this is to stimulate our minds to right thinking, to thinking right about the things that are written in Scripture. He says in both of these, meaning both letters, that he wants to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Peter wants to stir up our minds concerning the importance of God's Word. He wanted us to remind us and cause us to remember these things. The one thing I think is interesting is you can't remember something that you never knew. You have to know it to bring it to remembrance. And so it's clear that he wrote this letter to believers. Believers, so they would grow in knowledge. And what this means is that we should always be studying the Word of God. We should be learning the, the, the doctrines of the faith. We should be pouring over these great doctrines and understanding a new depth. There's nothing new in Scripture, but our understanding can, can grow. And we need to remember these certain doctrines and these certain key truths. But to truly know God, we need to know the Bible. We need to uh, develop what we believe by Scripture. And I think those key doctrines need to be studied over and over again. You know, there's people that that will say, well, you know, I uh, when I was younger, I went through a discipleship training manual, and oh man, I really developed spiritually. That's exciting. But there's no discipline, uh, discipleship training manual that exists that will replace knowing these books of the Bible. Going over them again and again. And so what Peter says here is we need to know and remember. We need to continually go over them. And so Peter deals especially with the pressures of, of suffering as Christian in this world. And in Second Peter, he deals especially with the false, uh, false disciples and false teachers within the church. But what I think we can see is that Peter views both of these letters the same way. Because all of the teaching and all of the exhortation in both these letters is rooted in the same gospel teaching. And that really is is what it comes down to. It comes down to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, His present reign and His coming again in glory. Everything that Peter writes is ultimately a reminder of these things. Things that we should already know in order that we can be constantly stirred up or awakened, that we constantly are thinking of running the race, fighting the good fight. And so, what the point of this chapter is, with all its terrifying language of apostasy and judgment, is so that we're not paralyzed with fear. That we don't end up finding ourselves in despair but rather that we would stir up a sincere mind 
by way of reminder. And so you can see there in verse 1, Peter says, I stir up your pure minds. The people of God are a people of pure minds. Or your, your version actually might say, I stir up your sincere mind. If you look up the word pure in the Greek dictionary, <clears throat> um, it's actually the word uh, hilkrenes and uh, hilkrenes. And it literally means judged by sunlight. Judged by sunlight. That's what that word means. And this term was originally used to describe good quality pottery. In the ancient world, you'd have someone that would buy a a pot or a vase and they would hold it up to the sunlight uh, to see if there was any wax that was used to fill these weak cracks. And so that you could see that by examination of sunlight. And so um, the when you look at other versions, it actually uses the word sincere. And the word sincere is from the Latin word. It's a, co- it's a compound word. It's from the words sine, which is without, and sire, which is wax, without wax. To be sincere is without wax. Nothing to cover up and hide. It's all out there. It's open. And the only other place that this is used in the New Testament is actually in Philippians 1.10. So why don't we turn to Philippians 1, and we'll read from uh, verses uh, 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, starting with verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to thank this of all of you, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace." For God is my witness, how greatly I long for all, you all, with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may be approved that you may approve the things that are excellent did you get that that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment that you may approve the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ being filled with the fruit of righteousness which are by Christ Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, that word sincere there is the same word used in our text. P 
Peter writes this, stir up that, stir up pure minds. The, the Greek word stir up is uh, diagero, and it means to wake up, to arouse, to get up from sleep. This word is actually um, used to describe a campfire, believe it or not. You know how when a campfire, you, you have it roaring at night and you're sitting around it and then you're ready to go to bed and it sort of settled down and in the morning you get up and you look at it and the coals are all gray and cold and, and all. And all you have to do is take a stick and start stirring it. And all of a sudden it comes back to flame. All of a sudden there's, that's what it's talking about is to be able to stir you back up into flame. That's actually what the preaching of the gospel should do. That's what fellowship should do, is to stir you up back into flame, arouse you, awaken you. Because, quite honestly, as Christians, there's times where we need to be stirred up. We tend to uh, toward apathy. And so, if we're not receiving admonition from the, the Word of God, and our brothers and sisters in the church, we tend to just grow cold, right? We need the fellowship. That's why this COVID shutdown and everything and separating, we're losing that stirring. You see a lot of, a lot of believers that are, are cold and gray right now because they've lost that fellowship. They lost that stirring up. They lost the, the gathering together. You know, and the thing is, when they're not together like that, there's no fuel. And even in some churches, the fuel isn't the Word of God. It's try to get emotionalism going. And, and that's, not, that's not fuel. That's sort of like throwing gas on a fire. You see this, woo, and then it's gone. That's what emotionalism is. So, we need doctrinal truth. We need the truth of Scripture to be the fuel. And so that takes tremendous effort to press toward the mark, the prize, the high calling of God in Christ. It takes a willing spirit. But we know that the flesh is weak. So we need to be stirred up. Not emotionally. You know, we need to be stirred up cognitively. Emotion never brings about truth. Whereas truth can bring about emotion. And the point of this word is that Peter wants his believers, uh, wants believers to fully and alertly and completely awake their minds to the truth of God. He wants the people that are sleeping to come to, to understanding, come to a greater understanding of the truth of God, to sharpen their minds. And this stresses the importance of having an active mind toward the truth of God. So that you you realize that I need to know the truth because there are false teachers out there. And so he talks about having a pure mind. About having the right focus. Not to have anything mixed with it. To have an unalloyed truth. Free from any mixed substance. And the inspired scriptures have been written to affect your, you specifically, your individual mind, to be thinking about the pure milk of the word. God wants his people 
knowing pure truth, thinking pure truth. False teachers don't have that. They have polluted minds that are after, after sinful things, lustful things. And that's what we actually read in verse 2. It says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandments of us and the apostles of the Lord and Savior. See, he's, he's saying that we need to make sure that we understand that these words were given in the past. And the, the key point here is that there's proper doctrine, proper belief, proper lifestyle when we focus on the written Word of God. If we don't go to work on accurately understanding and interpreting the actual words God wrote, we're not pursuing the course that God wants us to pursue. Our faith comes down to words used rightly. Words form sentences. Sentences form paragraphs. And the words that grammatically develop are all inspired by God in the Word of God. And so Peter qualifies what words believers should focus on. He says that there are three divine sources of these inspired words. And he he says, this is what you find cover to cover. He says, first of all, that they are as the holy prophets had spoke them. And the holy prophets are prophets who have truly been set apart by God. And the reason that he did this is because there were false prophets, false teachers, false pastors who were actually not called and set apart by God. These Old Testament prophets were set apart by God to communicate God's Word. And when false teachers start propagating false ideas, we need to immediately use our minds to think about whether or not it squares with the prophetic Word of God. We trust the Bible because it's the Word of God. And what does it mean to be the Word of God? Well, I like what John John Frame says in his book, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. He defines the Word of God as God's powerful, authoritative self-expression. I love that. God's powerful, authoritative self-expression. We know who God is because of God's Word. It's not by sitting out in the woods and looking at nature. We can see there is a God. We understand there is a God. But we know who God is by His Word. God's Word is amazingly powerful because it doesn't just communicate. It, it's powerful because it It creates and controls. Frame actually says, the Word is the very presence of God among us. The place where God dwells. So you cannot separate the Word of God from God Himself. I hope you caught that. Peter's reminding us that you cannot separate the Word of God from God Himself. God's Word reveals God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, God is not the written Word, 
but the written word is the living God, the essence of God, the essence of Jesus Christ. And so one of the greatest themes that shows up over and over in the Old Testament prophets is that one day Jesus will come and judge the world. And all government will be on his shoulders and he will rule the world. In Exodus chapter 34 and verses 6 through 7, we read about a loving and merciful and gracious God. And I'm going to read this from the NASB because this is a little bit clearer as we uh, listen to this. In verse 6 it says, Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, passionate and mercy, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who gives forgiveness, or who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin. Then he continues, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Our text clearly challenges us to be careful to remember what the Old Testament books say. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.6 says the same thing, speaking of the Old Testament. He says these things happened as examples for us. We need to work our way through the words of the Old Testament and understand them in light of the New Testament. The second group found in verse 2 are the apostles. Now, this is important because the apostles who were called of God didn't change what the Old Testament prophets wrote. In fact, if you begin to walk through the New Testament, I'll specifically speak of the Apostle Paul, he's called in Romans 11 as the apostle to the Gentiles, referring uh, to that he was called out of due season. He was, he was a, a man who was going to give the, the word of God. And we remember in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus when the Lord converts him and the Lord spoke to him. And then Paul, more than any other apostle, spoke the word of God more quantifiably than any other person in the New Testament. The very first two letters that the Lord gave us through the Apostle Paul were First and Second Thessalonians, which about one-third of the material involves the second coming. In other words, we don't dismiss it as, well, that's for another period of time. They address everything in the same manner that the Old Testament prophets addressed it. And so we need to study the aspects of it. We need to realize the relevance of the Old Testament. We need to understand that the New Testament uh, Christian, uh, that the Old Testament was as relevant for the New Testament Christian as it was for the Old Testament Jews. And so you have the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, And then you have Jesus Christ himself, the Lord and Savior. 
And you can look at the words that came directly out of Jesus' mouth. He taught about the same subject matters as, as the first two did. But you know what? He spoke more about his second coming than he ever did the cross. The entire chapter of the second coming in Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 25, Mark 13, Luke 20, 21, those are entire chapters dedicated just to the second coming. And it's important that we understand all of this, the matters of chronologically of the second coming of, of Christ. It was given in the Old Testament. And we can see that it was given again by Jesus Christ the exact same way. And there's differing opinions as to the phrase, the commandment of the Lord. But I think in Matthew 28, uh, 18, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And what does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then here it says in verse 20, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. We need to be obedient in following the commandments. And so if some false teachers say he's not going to return, those who have pure minds and pure truth go, nope, I know he will. Because I've studied the, the prophets and the apostles and Jesus Christ. I know that. And so there's that, that commandment that we need to follow the word of God. And then in, in verse 3 of our text, it says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Those three words, knowing this first, it calls our attention to what this text teaches. The topic that Peter is addressing is, the, is of preeminent importance. The issue of knowing this first, because mockers will come with their mocking. That's a warning for then and now. In the last days, that's not just some mysterious period of time yet to come. We're living in the last days. And guess what? They were back in Christ's time. They were living in the last days because the last days started when Christ ascended into heaven. That is what is meant by the, the term last days. And we see that in, uh, in Acts 2.17, and we also see in Hebrews 1.2, it referring to a time as the last days. Now, I, I tried to explain this in the Bible study, but we have two things that are different. We have uh, uh, chronographically... And we have chronologically. Right here, this is a chronograph. Your watch, specifically if it has a stopwatch feature. It is talking chronographically is specifically a period of time. Specific, one moment in time. Chronologically is an order of time from the earliest to the latest. So, 
we have to make sure that we understand that these last times are a period of time. It's chronologically set in motion at the ascension of Christ and will go until he returns. And in 1 Peter 1.20, Peter says that Christ has been manifest in these last times for you. And John 2.18 begins, Little children, it is the last time. You know, we always think, well, you know, the end is nearing. Well, it was then too. You know, we, we need to remember that and we need to understand that. And so Peter says, know this. You've got to understand this. These scoffers are going to come and they're not going to get it. And when we sit there and talk about the last times, they go, oh, no, 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 no. So Peter says, I want to warn you about their plan. I want to warn you about the, the mode of operation. Because you know what? They'll come. They'll come to try to steal your hope. They'll come to try to steal your joy. And they'll try to take away your motivation. Peter knows how critical a strong confidence in Christ's return is. And we'll see that when we get to verses 11 through 18. He really lays it out in a very practical manner. But, you know, Satan works very hard to take away our hope. And most liberal theologians try to deny the second coming of Christ. And so Christians need to know that Satan will make every effort to mock the second coming of Christ. And that's why in verse 4 of our text it reads, Scoffers will come saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They come first of all saying, Where is his coming? I mean, as Christians, we have tremendous hope in the Lord's return. He's coming back. He will return. He will fulfill his promises. And we will see his promises as his people. The Lord's return is a doctrine of hope. It will be a great, uh, great day of great joy and rejoicing for the people of God when Christ returns. Why do they scoff? Why do they mock? Because for those who are lost and unbelieving, the Lord's return is a fearful thing. When Jesus returns, he's coming as a judge. His first first time he came to this earth, I've not come to condemn the world, but to save it. He will come as judge. Salvation is done. The scoffers understand the final judgment will come and those who are unbelieving will suffer the wrath of God for eternity. And this is the doctrine that scoffers attack. They attack the Lord's return because it means their judgment. They can't bear the thought of the judgment of God. And so verse 4 goes on to tell how they attack the promise. They say, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They try to use the argument, well, you know, you say that there's, it's, it's getting to the end days, but I don't see that it's really changing. 
The natural world is not changing. It's the same as it was from the beginning. You know, they they look at the world will be the way it always has been. They're what is called uniformitarians. They argue that natural laws govern all things and they have acted in this way uniformly since the beginning of the universe. And they believe that nothing has ever interrupted these natural laws. And so it's reasonable for them to believe that nothing ever will. That line of reasoning emboldens them and they start to mock the promises of God. And they're sort of like the religious leaders who mock Christ as he hung on the cross, saying, save yourself. Show us a sign. They're always asking for a sign, always for a revelation. And they've already been given that in nature. One commentator said, presumptuous skepticism and lawless lust, setting nature and its so-called laws above the uh, the God of nature and the revelation of God. They try to act as though God comes under the laws of nature instead of the law of nature coming under God. And so people run amok in sin. They have every form of debauchery, ungodliness. They become more and more impervious to God's truth. They resent his standards of righteousness. They'll be vile. They'll be preoccupied with sex, drugs, alcohol, materialism, anything that they can do to to seek pleasure. And they will believe every explanation of end time signs except for that which is given in Scripture. Rather than turning to God in repentance, they curse Him. Revelation 9, 20 and 21 says, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their, the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their, their murders, or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. I think it's interesting. As I was doing my study, I I ran across something where it says that at the site of the Dachau concentration camp near Munich, Germany, there's all these photographs of the horrors of Nazi Germany. And alongside these relics and memorabilia is a sign on the door. And it says, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. I think it's incredibly interesting how many people are worried that some manic uh, dictator will trigger off a nuclear holocaust. Or how AOC says we have 12 years to to live unless we do something about global warming. Yeah. Spurgeon said, the earth is a pile of wood and the torchbearers stand ready to kindle it at any moment. There's always been a cry of fire among men and the cry grows louder 
every century, for the burning is near. Worried about some dictator pushing the button. But the Bible says he, the Lord himself will set fire to the world. Absolutely interesting. People want to reject the truth of God. They want to look to climate change or something else for their guarantee. Folks, we need to be stirred up in the truth. We need to hold firm to sound doctrine. We need to not let anyone steal our joy and hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this clear word of insight into the strategies of the mockers and the scoffers, those who are enemies of our souls. Thank you for what Peter has given to us. And may it remind us of what he said. Know this first of all. Understand the ploy that they're using. We need to be aware of it. Be alert to it so we don't become a victim of it. Lord, we trust your word. We believe your word. And we won't be intimidated by their ridicule. We'll not fall victim to the lifestyle of those who want no accountability. We will not succumb to the absolutely foolish and religious, uh, ridiculous logic of this evolutionary-minded world. Lord, we will stand by your word, we will stand by your truth, and we will do it with great confidence. And we will do it for the sake of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.